Welcome to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. Today's episode is less scripted, less polished, rustic, if you will. Grab a chair and your drink of choice and get ready to hear all about the birth of gunpowder. It's unfiltered soldiers. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser. Today is the first episode of what I call Unfiltered Soldiers. What this is is a very unstructured episode compared to the usual stuff you're used to listening to by now. There is no music. There is minimal editing. All I have is an outline and a couple of books. I have a couple of books right here to my left, and that's all I have to reference. I didn't do a bunch of research. I didn't write a script. I usually write a script for my episodes just to keep me on track, on topic, but I don't have a script today. I'm working completely off the cuff about something I generally already know a lot about. So these are four topics I just feel like talking about, something I want to get off my chest. So I might discuss a more common uh, area of military history in these episodes than I do in my usual episodes, which are focused on what I consider to be neglected or unknown parts of military history. So if I ever air my opinions on Washington or the Civil War or George Patton or the Roman legions, it's probably going to be here in the Unfiltered Soldiers episodes. This is also what I do when I just don't have that much time. I mean, gosh, it takes a lot of time to do what I do. It takes an hour and a half just to record, let alone all the research I do for everything, which is a lot of research. It is a lot of effort to get this content out to you. So this is a much easier way for me to deliver content, hopefully quality content, a method to get content to you guys quickly, plus a breathing space for me to produce the more in-depth episodes. So if this is a success, if you guys like this, cool. If not, also cool. I'll find some other way to fill the space. Maybe I'll do a short round. Maybe I'll do more short rounds about weird dudes from history. But I feel like this is a good concept. I'm going to see how it goes, see how it works out. So today's episode is, today's Unfiltered Soldiers episode is talking about an unknown, misunderstood era that I think deserves more attention than it gets, especially in pop culture. It is a transition period. And I love, I love transition periods. The in-between periods where weird stuff is happening. For instance, episode about the period right after World War I. That's a weird in-between transition period where all sorts of wild stuff is happening after the armistice that doesn't get talked about. But this period that I'm talking about today, I've actually covered twice already. That is in episode 6, The Last Crusade, about the Siege of Malta, and in episode 10, about Najinga. It's one of my favorite periods in history, and I want to describe it to you. It is a difficult period to visualize for a lot of people because it's hard for them to get the transition. There's not a lot of movies featuring this period. There's not a lot of media. There's not a lot of pop cultural portrayals of this period. It is the transition from medieval warfare to gunpowder warfare, from Mustangs to muskets. How did we get from one to the other? How did we get from the knight on horseback with his lance and his armor to the American Revolution soldier, let's just use that as a baseline. Our soldier in our tri-corner hat with the flintlock musket and cannons and artillery. How do we get from one to the other? How did that transition occur? And I think that's the gap I think people don't have sometimes in their mental picture of military history. Their understanding of how these guns 
how we started implementing gunpowder weapons into our societies and our cultures and our military history. I mean, when did people start using guns? What were the early guns like? And I'm going to answer a few big questions today. I want to answer a few big questions. This is my goal. First question, why didn't everyone just start using guns as soon as they appeared? Why wasn't this the immediate, oh, we invented the gun, let's all use guns, because they did not do that. Second, why did so many things we think of as medieval last for so long? I want to really talk about cavalry today, men on horseback and how they were a deadly weapon. Well into the period after people were using guns, cavalry lasted a long, long time when you would think, when some people have the pop cultural concept, that guns made cavalry obsolete. They definitely did not. Cavalry was used for hundreds of years after guns became the major infantry weapon of all armies. So we, have, we still have armor. We still have swords. We still have all these melee weapons long after guns are introduced. So why did all this last for so long? And finally, why did gunpowder warfare, why did this new technology develop unevenly across the world? Why were things different in China, in the Middle East, in India, in Europe, in Japan? Why was this developing differently? Were they just behind? Were some people ahead? Was this a race? Maybe not. We'll find out. It's a brief overview of how the world went from medieval warfare to gunpowder warfare. And I think, I hope you'll be entertained by this. I hope you'll be entertained because this is all off-the-cuff stuff. I got a couple of books I'm going to reference at certain points, but it's all off-the-cuff. I'm not, I'm not, I haven't written this all out. I don't have footnotes or citations or any of it. This is just stuff I happen to know. And as always, the guys, this is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on, though it's mostly talk about technology and stuff today. The language is clean, remains clean, even though I'm talking off the cuff, but the content isn't. Second, I don't have any sources for this episode. Going completely off the cuff, if I do have a source, I will mention it in the episode today. I will mention the book I'm referencing during the episode. So it's not going to be a post on my website to describe what I'm talking about. That's This is a purposely low-effort, low-production-value episode. It's an off-the-cuff. It's unfiltered soldiers. To tell you how unfiltered it is, I'm having a beer right now. It is a Palmetto Brewing Company, Huger Street IPA. It's okay. Kind of tastes like a sweaty armpit, but that's all IPAs, according to some people. Okay, there's this this belief, right? Let's believe, oh, how can you drink that IPA? There's this belief people seem to have that uh, IPAs, nobody actually likes them. They just drink them to um, be, you know, to be better than everybody else, to be, you know, highfalutin. You're drinking your uh, hipster IPAs. I actually like the taste of most IPAs. Come on. I do like them. I really, I enjoy comparing the different ones. The, The new fruit ones I really like, especially... The Huger Street IPA from Palmetto Brewing Company. I think it's in Savannah. It's probably in Savannah. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Uh, no, Charleston, South Carolina and Morganton, North Carolina. Uh, it's not bad. I've had better. I've had better. Okay. But yeah, so I'm, I'm having a beer while I'm talking about this. This is not the high production value you might be used to. And I apologize for that. So again... You know, everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. If there's a mistake, I will correct it. I don't think that I'm going to make any mistakes today, but if I say something incorrect, I will go back and edit it out, hopefully, because I always listen to these things and edit them afterwards. 
you don't think you're getting the full unvarnished me just ranting about something, do you? I hope you don't, because you can get that in person, and it's not always a pleasant experience, as my wife could tell you. But everything, again, everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This is a real story with real people over hundreds of years who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So let's talk about guns. So there's a concept I have, a, uh, a term I have for how people understand history of technology in the modern day. And it's the video gamization of history and technology. It's not an actual word. It's a word I made up. What I'm talking about here is concepts that come from usually strategy games. Games like Age of Empires or Civilization or the Paradox games or what have you. Where technology is a track. It's on one tree and you're either up the tree, you're moving up the tree, or you're not moving up the tree. The technology is we either have guns level one or you have guns level three. Age of Empires, you know, you've researched chemistry. Now you can make guns. Um, that's not how technology's worked in history, ever. It's not, we don't know what comes next. People didn't know in the 1200s AD that these guns were going to be a big thing. For all that, from what they could see, they were kind of useless at the time. Why would we use this? This isn't any good. So we have to answer the question, the, the big question. What is technology for? What is the development of tools, the development of better tools, bigger and stronger and, you know, more high tech? What is the development of all this stuff for? Technology is developed in response to a problem, to solve some sort of problem, to do something. And we can see that in the present day. For instance, streaming. Why was streaming invented? Why was streaming invented? Because we had the problem of consumers. Consumers wanted content directly. The internet made that possible, so streaming was developed to solve a commercial problem that these media content creators had. It doesn't have to be a major problem. It doesn't have to be a life-or-death situation. It can just be a workaround to a previous situation that wasn't working out as optimally as somebody wanted. So the same thing applies for weaponry. Weaponry is developed to solve some sort of problem a civilization faces. There's not a guy at the top, there's not a gamer sitting at his keyboard thinking, hmm, I will research guns level three this week. There might be a ruler who wants to invest more, you know, spend more money to invest in certain types of technology, especially in the super centralized states of the 20th century. There were, you know, you'd have Franklin D. Roosevelt who's blessing off on development for the atomic bomb. But that was a shot in the dark too. Nobody understood that the atomic bomb was going to be as big as it was. The fact that America had put a lot of money and time into the atomic bomb in the 1940s was the fact that America had a lot of money and they could afford to do that. No other country really could at the time. Every other country was focusing on tanks and plane development or firearms development or industrial development because the atomic bomb project was a huge input of money and resources that might not be worth it. They didn't know that it was going to result in the biggest revolution in warfare for centuries. So a lot of countries didn't think it was worth the effort. The United States did, and the result is history. But what I'm saying is that they can't see into the future. They don't see the tech tree on the little screen from guns level 1 to guns level 3 to guns level 5. They are in the dark. Guns level 1 might lead nowhere. You might be better off 
researching swords or researching longer spears, etc., etc., etc. I'm making a video game analogy here. I'm working from that analogy. But my point is, you know, if you're a ruler in the 1300s, you don't know that guns are going to be the next big thing. It could be something else. Let's look at why technology develops different ways in different places, too, because that makes a big difference. Geography makes a big difference. Time periods make a big difference. The suitability of technology is an important factor. Let's look at, for instance, the Inca Empire. So the Incas in the 1400s, 1500s, before the arrival of Europeans, had one of the most advanced civilizations in the world. They had these complex calendars. They had this postal service. They had this bureaucracy. They had this machinery of government that most of the European countries did not match. But you know what they didn't have? They didn't have wheels. Not like we think. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not like the Incas were stupid. They knew what a wheel was. They, there were children's toys we found from the Inca Empire that had wheels on them. But the Incas didn't use carts with wheels because those weren't useful in their environment. The Incas lived in the Andes. It was hard to make roads in the Andes. Most supplies were transported by llama or alpaca, which aren't really good animals to harness a cart to. The result is carts weren't useful to the Incas, so they didn't develop the large wheels that Europeans, Asians were familiar with. It wasn't they didn't know how, it wasn't that they were stupid, it was just that technology tree wasn't something they needed, so they didn't work on it. Same thing, same thing. They found this ancient battery, right? This ancient thing with a, you know, a clay pot with a copper rod and something that people have theorized might be a battery, a action, actual electrical producing battery from about the, from the BC period, from 500s to 300s BC. No, 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 no. I'm actually wrong about that. It's about the 200s to 400s AD, AD, CE. My mistake. But no, seriously, you got a battery. You got a, you got a battery, a battery in the time before the fall of the Roman Empire. It's a, it produces electricity. But what do you do with that? There's not a, you don't have a Tonka truck to put it into or anything. We think, some people think that it was used for electroplating, for electrically forging uh, metal onto surfaces. That was what they did used used it for. And you're sitting there, you might be sitting there thinking, oh my God, they had a battery. They could do so many things with that. Oh, oh my goodness. But yeah, but what were they going to do with it? Well, what were they, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to light something up? Ooh, I made a light. Yeah, great. That's one battery for one light. What are we going to do with that? What that's not, a, that's not an industrial revolution, guys. That's not coal plants. That's not oil plants. That's not, even, that's not anything. It's, it's a battery. My point is, the technology had to be useful for it to be developed. It had to serve a purpose. It had to do something. All technology builds off each other. And if it didn't do something, there was no point in pursuing it as far as we might expect them to. There's, there's this great Mark Twain novel. Uh, Mark Twain novel, uh, Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, where a random American goes back in time and gives King Arthur machine guns. It's it's a good time travel story. It's actually a lot of fun. Um, it is Mark Twain, so he's very, 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 very cynical about everything. But uh, at the very end of the ba- at the very end of the book, this dude ends up producing. That's actually a really good book. I really like it. But this dude ends up making like creating a pre-World War I with machine guns and artillery in 
King Arthur's England, and it's horrifying. It's like the worst thing you've ever heard of. And the fact that he's been so modern this whole time, like, yay, look how modern we are. And then it results in pre-World War I, because Twain was writing this before World War I. And you're like, wow, maybe the modern world sucks. But moving on, moving on, that's a tangent. This is see, this is why I write scripts. This is why I write scripts. Because if I don't write a script, I end up doing that, where I talk about Mark Twain for like a minute before going back to what I was actually talking about. Okay, all technology builds off each other. Technology functions off trial and error, and innovation usually comes very slowly. It's sped up a lot in the last hundred years because of instant communication, which is a big deal. Instant communication changed everything. But innovation, in general, is a, was, has been a very slow process throughout history. And inspiration is easier than implementation. What do I mean by that? Inspiration is easy on limitation. Inspiration, it's easy, it's easy to have an idea. It's very difficult to make that idea productive and functional. Like you can see in Star Trek, in the original Star Trek show, where they're imagining all these wonderful pieces of technology, but you know, making those technologies happen, some of that technology is still way beyond us, and it probably will be for a very long time if we ever get there. The idea is easier than making it actually work. So when someone made a gun for the first time, they looked at it like, wow, we could kill a lot of people with these if only it didn't suck. Because early guns sucked. But we'll get to that. Finally, there's the concept of hardware versus software. I don't just mean computers. I have this concept. I'm not sure if I got it from somewhere else or if I made it up. I probably didn't make it up because I'm not that smart. But hardware versus software. The difference between the development of a technology and the institutions, the bureaucracy, the administration, the concepts and the doctrine and the mentality that go with that technology. It's like if you went back to the 500s AD and you gave them machine guns. If you went back to the fall of the Roman Empire, like here, have some machine guns, that will stop the Huns. Okay, cool. They have the machine guns, but do they have the know-how? Do they have the doctrine? Do they have the expertise? Do they have the support system? Do they have all this other stuff they need to use the hardware? Do they have the software to run on the hardware? So when a lot of um, other countries, other than European or American countries, would get firearms in the 18th and 19th century, they would be like, cool, we have guns now. But they didn't have the organization, they didn't have the training, they didn't have the discipline that other armies had. And in many cases, I want to be very clear, in many cases, they did a very good job of getting there and some of them succeeded, but others didn't. And they paid for it. Not not like they deserved to have that happen to them or anything. It was just geography, which we'll get to, which we'll talk about. But uh, hardware versus software. Hardware is the actual material stuff, the technology, the economic power, the industrial, all this stuff. The software is how you use it, how you make it work. What do you do with it? The hardware is, it's the computer analogy. The hardware is, you can have a great gaming rig, but if you're playing, uh, playing a little chess app on it, it's not making full use of the hardware. But there's software, like I remember very clearly being very upset when I had a college, you know, a little laptop in college, I would want to download a certain game, but I didn't have the hardware to play the game. I had, I had an advanced game, but it was too advanced for the hardware I was using. So that's what I'm saying. 
hardware versus software, and I'm talking about this in military history as a concept. The hardware is the technology, the economic, the, the material. The software is the mental, the, uh, the societal side of things. So when I talk about the guns today, I'll be talking about hardware versus software a little bit, right? So let's get to those guns. So one day, someone invented guns. Well, that's, that's a very reductive way of saying it, but someone invented guns sometime, somewhere. Real quick, real quick. What is a gun? What is a firearm? What do I mean when I say that? For very broad purposes, for a very broad definition, a gun is a weapon that uses an explosive force to propel a projectile down a tube. Now, that can be a lot of things. That could be the very earliest muskets or the very earliest cannons. It can be a modern tank cannon or a modern field artillery piece. I say uh, explosive force because even though most guns, most guns of all types, have used gunpowder or some derivative of gunpowder as that explosive force, a lot of more modern weapons use a different explosive force. Most tank cannons and artillery pieces use a chemical propellant of some kind. So that's what a gun is at its most basic. It's something that makes the big boom, that makes something fly out of the tube, that hopefully hits something that you want dead, or at least wounded, or at least unhappy. So when did this happen? When did people discover guns? When did people invent guns? Okay, so let's establish a basic timeline. And this comes from uh, Kenneth Chase, Firearms, The Global History to 1700, which I love. I love this book. It's an excellent book. Uh, I think someone got it for me. And if you're listening to this, thank you so much. I love this book. We know the Chinese discovered gunpowder because it is described in a work probably dating to the 800s AD. Huh, when is that? Gosh, that's a long time ago. That is the reign of Charlemagne in Europe. That is around the time that Arab civilization in the Middle East was at its height. Uh, still several hundred years before the modern kingdoms of England and of France could really be considered to be established. So this is a long, long time ago. They knew what gunpowder was a long time ago. And the Chinese were the ones to discover gunpowder, without a doubt. All the evidence points to its discovery being in China. They were the ones to discover it. And they made a lot of weapons types with gunpowder before actual guns were invented. There's a lot of different weapons using gunpowder, you know, as a propellant, as an explosive. You got bombs, you got mines, you got fireworks, you got rockets. And we talked about in the Divine Wind episode about the Mongol invasion of Japan, how the Mongols were using primitive fire gunpowder grenades, uh, explosive grenades when they invaded Japan. So there are lots of different uses for gunpowder that weren't gun uses, that didn't make a gun. But in about the 1100s, a sculpture in China appears to be holding a firearm. And this is one of those things about historical evidence. Like, there's a lot of stuff we just don't know. We just can't know because we don't have evidence for it. It's, it's, like, it's like solving a crime. You go in, you see what evidence you have. Well, we don't know where he was from 08 to, to 1500, but we know he was here before she was shot on the other side of town. It's the same thing in history. We don't know when China invented guns, but we know that a sculpture in China has a firearm or what looks like a firearm in the 1100s AD. And in the 1200s AD, we have found a gun. Historians have found a gun in China. A very, 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 very primitive gun, but it's still a gun. 
and the Europeans on the other side of the world knew about gunpowder, at least by the 1200s, and they definitely had guns of their own by the early 1300s. So that we know they had guns, we know that guns were a force by the 1200s, 1300s. Keep in mind when this is. This is very early. This is extremely early, much earlier than I think people realize. This is the time, this is before, much before William Wallace and Braveheart and all that. This is around the time of the Crusades. There were guns being used in some parts of the world around the time the Crusades were still going on. So we know they had guns, but what were they going to do with them? And this is what I'm going to keep coming back to. Tools and weapons are used to solve a problem, to do something. We have guns. What are we going to use them for? So what does medieval warfare look like? If you, you might have a picture in your head. You might. And there was a dominant weapon system on the battlefield from about 200 to 300 to 400 AD. Your interpretation differs. Everybody's interpretation of this differs to around 1500 AD. And that was the man on a horse. The man on a horse was the dominant weapon system on the battlefield. It was the biggest problem anybody had to face when fighting another country for the most part. And this this man on the horseback, this man on horseback was a new invention. Part of this was because of the invention of the stirrup, which stabilized the guy on horseback, made him able to withstand a larger shock, made him able to ride better and faster. This cavalry also became, was the result of bigger horses being bred. Earlier horses weren't as large, weren't, didn't have as much stamina as later horses did. War horses like the knights would use were a new invention from selective breeding. But the man on horseback assumed different forms in different parts of the world, wherever he showed up. Always he. War in this period is usually a man thing, with all the silliness that comes with that. So, there are several different kinds of cavalry that are being used around the world. There's light cavalry, there's heavy cavalry, there's horse archers, you name it. There's different styles, and this is largely culturally and regionally based. It depends on the geography of the place they live, it depends on the local traditions, it depends on a lot of stuff. So let's broadly categorize them into into Europe, which used heavy shock cavalry. These are your knights, and they were a class. They were a social class in addition to being a combat arm. They weren't just one unit among many. They were the unit. They were the base of any army. The shock power of the knight's charge was the base of the European army. And in Japan in the Middle Ages... You also had heavy cavalry, but the heavy cavalry there was usually fighting with bows. Like the knights, they were heavily armored, but they were using bows because that was the noble weapon. That was the noble weapon of the time. For whatever reason, that's how the Japanese culture developed. But then you have the middle. You have the middle between these, the Central Asian Russian Chinese area. And the biggest danger to any culture, any civilization in most of Asia and Eastern Europe, is the steppe nomad. The steppe nomad is the biggest military threat that any civilization faced from 200 to 1500 AD. In many places longer than that. Because they had the best cavalry in the world. 
When I say steppe nomad, I'm talking partly about the Mongols. The Mongols were incredibly dangerous. But this Mo- the Mongols were only one of several different steppe nomad groups that were incredibly dangerous. Just from the 200s AD, you have the Huns, the Goths, the, the Avars, the Magyars, the Pechenegs, the Turks... All these different groups that use that use step nomad cavalry, usually light cavalry, using a composite bow that was able to release a bunch of sharp, fast arrows at a very quick pace. The, the biggest qualities any cavalry has, the biggest qualities that cavalry possesses that make it such a dominant weapon are speed and shock. Men on horseback are fast, much faster than marching infantry, and they deliver a shock value. They have shock power. Keep, it, keep in mind, keep in mind, a horse, only if you've been around a horse, if you've been around a horse, a horse is a really big animal. It's a large animal. It's larger than people think, I think. It's larger than, it's easy to forget how big a horse is and how much damage a horse can do. Even just being on its own, it can, being thrown off a horse's back can kill you. It is a dangerous, large animal. Now imagine that large, dangerous animal with a large, dangerous man on top of him with a long, sharp, pointy object, and he is coming 25 miles per hour, coming towards you specifically, trying to kill you specifically. Cavalry is an incredibly dangerous weapon. The speed and shock of cavalry should not be underestimated. Cavalry charges were the scariest thing on the planet for any soldier for hundreds of years. It was the thing they were afraid of, the cavalry charge. They were the biggest military threat, and the steppe nomads, the Mongols and their ilk, the steppe nomads were the biggest military threat any civilization faced for hundreds of years. They were the biggest problem. And when they arrived, they weren't just going to kill you. They were going to kill you and probably enslave your entire family. It was a serious threat. So how do you counteract this? For most places, they built defenses. They built defenses against cavalry. They built castles. China built a great wall. But most places built castles. That's why, and the castle was how you stopped the cavalry from just overrunning everything. This is why it was also hard to fight a quick, decisive campaign in most of the Middle Ages, because it always had to end in a months-long siege of some random little castle that you couldn't take. So that's why cavalry is the biggest problem that needs to be solved for most of the Middle Ages. Cavalry is the number one threat. It is the danger. It is the dominant weapon on the battlefield. Keep that in mind as we move on and talk about these guns. Cavalry is the thing everyone needs to be concerned about at all times. The infantry can sort of stand up to them, but cavalry is going to kill you. Cavalry is going to kill you quickly, is going to approach you quickly, and stab you in the face before you have a chance to do much of anything about it. So now that we've established that, I can't can't stress this enough, the power and shock of a cavalry charge remains, until very recently, was the biggest thing our ancestors were concerned about. Moving on. So let's talk about these early guns. When we had these early guns, so you've invented the gun, and you want to use it. What are you going to use it for? What are you going to do with the gun? Well, keep in mind, early guns were trash. They were garbage. They sucked. Their range was very limited. Very limited. Less than 100 meters, if that. Very unreliable. Very unreliable. I mean, 
there's there's records of even when the guns were relatively more advanced in the 15 and 1600s that a third of any shot was like one out of three shots was going to be a misfire for whatever reason they were unreliable and they weren't just unreliable in like oh no my gun didn't shoot they were unreliable in they might explode in your face they might just blow up because something got messed up the projectile didn't go down the tube projectile got stuck that explosive force had to go somewhere and it blew up the gun in your face at least one king of scotland i think james third james third stewart was killed when his favorite cannon the lion because he wanted to see the lion roar so he went out and stood next to his cannon when it was firing at this enemy castle and it blew up and it took the top of his head off because it sucked guns early guns sucked they were also expensive. It took a lot of time and effort to make these guns, especially the cannons. These, these were enormous pieces of metal. They had to be cast properly. The original cannons were just, you know, strips of iron that they tried to weld together to make a cannon. That's not going to stand up really well to force, guys. I mean, you guys ever watch Forged in Fire? I like Forged in Fire. It's a good show. It's a good show for me to watch, like, absent-mindedly while I'm doing something else. But it's a fun show. And look at these guys. These guys are the guys who actually do this as their job. They are often professional welders or professional blacksmiths, and they're thrown into a weird environment, and they can barely make a knife. Imagine, imagine taking a random blacksmith, and they say, hey, make me a cannon. Make me a cannon that won't blow up in my face every time I fire around. Make it to a certain spec. Make it to a certain caliber. Oh, and, you know... Make it light enough to transport. Lord of mercy, these things are huge. The early cannons are huge. Why would... And of course, it takes a long time to load them and a long time to fire them. You got to clean them out every time. Otherwise, this is the round... The barrel will get fouled, the round will get stuck, and then boom goes the cannon and probably you lose your job. So now we go, you know, it's just these early guns sucked. And they definitely... And I'm talking about cannons and handguns at this point. Cannons, which are the big artillery pieces, and handguns, which is something the individual guy uses. And these were definitely not very effective against cavalry, which I'll remind you is the number one problem everybody has. Think about the reload times versus the rate that a cavalryman can come towards you. He's coming at you very fast. You have seconds before he closes with you and kills you with his sharp pointy object so you're trying to desperately reload this crappy gun that barely hits anything you know oh forgot limited accuracy too they weren't very accurate so you're trying to desperately reload this thing while this guy on the horse is coming towards you with his sword or his lance about to kill you or heck with he's a mongol he has a composite bow with an arrow knocked and he's going to kill you and you're desperately trying to load your gun not just not good just not good. And this is why, one of the big reasons, a lot of countries that had to deal with steppe nomads on a daily basis, where the steppe nomad was their number one problem, didn't develop lots of muskets or cannon early on. The early versions of those guns weren't really effective against steppe nomads. Fast-moving, fast-striking, fluid steppe nomads, there wasn't much ability to use guns against these guys. So it didn't make sense to invest much time or money into developing them. This is why most of China's gunpowder weapons, because China was had a frontier that they were holding against the Mongols, objectively the most dangerous steppe nomads. So all of China's gunpowder weapons were defensively oriented. They were meant to be used from the walls of castles against attackers. And this changed how they developed. 
The Chinese had a problem to solve. Their problem was steppe nomads. That's why the gunpowder technology didn't develop as well in China as it did in other places where they had different problems to solve. Gunpowder technology was only really useful in certain situations due to just how primitive it was. The tech evolved differently in different places for different reasons. It is, technology is created to perform a task, to solve a problem, to fill a gap, to solve some difficulty that you face. For the Chinese, their difficulty was steppe nomads, and that was not a mistaken assumption they made. China was always threatened by steppe nomads, and gunpowder weapons, early gunpowder weapons, just weren't useful against them. So there wasn't a firearms race. This wasn't like different civilizations all over the world trying to outcompete each other to produce the best gun they could. The Europeans wouldn't know or care the Japanese were using guns or how they were using guns. The Chinese wouldn't care what, say, the Ottomans were doing. No one was thinking, gosh, in 300 years we might have to fight these people. They were trying to solve the immediate problem, the problem right in front of them. And in Europe, that problem was castles. Most early gunpowder warfare was conducted from or against stone walls. Europeans developed their gunpowder weaponry to solve a problem. And their biggest problem was cracking open all those castles, which were the biggest problem of medieval warfare. Like I said earlier, Castles could hold up a campaign for years. You could win a battle, but battles were very rarely effective. Taking castles were what was winning wars. That was what was effective. In medieval warfare, battles were relatively rare. I mean, there's famous battles, stuff like Hastings, Agincourt, what have you, but most battles were when somebody made a mistake. Like, battles were not the preferred form of warfare because they were inherently risky. They were inherently difficult. What was preferred from a warfare in medieval times? Uh, cavalry raids, sieges on castles, and that was really about it. Taking castles and taking castles quickly was the problem that needed to be solved if people wanted to learn how to win wars better. So Europeans developed their gunpowder weaponry to do one big thing, to take castles quicker. And this was why cannon were really useful. Cannon were much more effective than the previous siege weaponry, like then trebuchets or catapults. It would take weeks or months to build a catapult or trebuchet, usually on site. And the long trajectory and the low velocity of those projectiles weren't always very effective against the better castles. But you know what was effective? A big stone ball fired from a tube that went really fast thanks to gunpowder. Cannon were much more effective than any other siege weaponry if they worked, if they didn't suck, which they often did. The trebuchet and the catapult fired a small projectile. They fired it fairly fast. A cannon, well, your metal forging abilities are a limit for how big that cannon is and how big a projectile it can throw. And a longer tube means you can probably throw a projectile farther or or faster. Think back to very basic physics. Mass times velocity equals momentum. I think that's right. I'm not, a, I'm not a great at math. I promise. I'm not great at math. But you got that momentum. The cannon could fire a projectile with greater mass and greater velocity than, a, than any other siege weapon could. So, But you need these big cannon to break down these castle walls. And this imposes 
more problems, huge problems. First, maybe you build a huge gun, the biggest gun anyone's ever seen. Great. How do you get it over these crappy medieval roads to the castle you're trying to take? It could take weeks. It, these things were huge. They were huge because they didn't have the metal forging skills. They didn't have good, you know, solid alloys. They didn't know how to make things light. So these enormous guns, especially if you wanted to use more than a couple, had to be transported to the site of the siege. In some cases, the guns were so difficult to transport that it was easier to just build a forge and blacksmith's shop on site at the siege and just make the gun there. That's what the Ottomans did in front of Constantinople in 1453. They made the guns on site. And these things were enormously expensive. I mean, they're hugely expensive. But high price, high reward. If you can take those castles, well, that, that makes you a game changer in the, in the late medieval world. So these guns had an important social result, an important political result, in addition to having an important military result. Only very rich and powerful rulers could afford these enormous cannon. Only rich and powerful kings and emperors, etc., could afford these huge guns, these huge trains of artillery, which were monstrously expensive, monstrously difficult, have required experts and technicians and all this stuff. And this allowed rulers to centralize authority due to that high cost. Only they could afford it. And it also made the feudal castle obsolete. This was what all these random little barons and counts and dukes had been using for centuries as their trump card. The king musters up a huge army, wins a battle, the little knight, the, the count is like, nah, I got a castle, you gotta siege me for months to get me out of it, and it ultimately wasn't worth it. But now I have these big guns, and I can break your walls down in a matter of days. The growth of the modern state and the centralization of authority in modern countries was due to the use of firepower, the, the monopolization of the firepower of these artillery that nobody else could match. No private actor within the state could match. And our two big examples for this are France and the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire famously won one of the great sieges of history when they broke down the walls of Constantinople in 1453 using some of the just biggest smack and biggest guns you've ever seen. That enabled them to capture Constantinople destroy the last remnants of the Byzantine Empire, and launch them basically into superpower status. But there was also France in the Hundred Years' War. And in 1453, literally the same year that the Ottomans are doing what they're doing, France was finishing up its last campaign to throw the English out of France. This is the last campaign of the Hundred Years' War, and people who think of the Hundred Years' War, when they know about it, if they, don't, if they do, which many people don't, often think of, you know... Crecy and Agincourt, these big battles where the English longbowmen killed the French knights. Yeah, true, but people forget the French won the Hundred Years' War, and they won it from 1449 to 1453 when the new French artillery train just turned English castles into Swiss cheese. It wasn't even funny. Like these huge feudal castles, these high stone walls, days, days, they are no longer useful. The French run the English out of Normandy and run the English out of Aquitaine within a few years. 114-year-long war ended in four years because the French had these artillery and plus they had their knights ran down the English longbowmen in battles. 
But, you know, that's a longer story. It's a hundred years war story. Maybe it's a six episode series someday. Who knows? My point is these two powerful states, which were going to be the most, some of the most powerful states in the world in the 15 and 1600s, France and the Ottoman Empire, figured out how to use these guns to centralize their power early. They broke down these walls that had been stopping them for centuries from realizing their true ambitions, and they began their rise. So another question. When did the modern period begin? When did the world go from medieval to modern? A lot of different answers to that. There's probably people will say it happened over the course of centuries, which is honestly the, the true answer. That's definitely the correct answer. But if I had to pinpoint, if I if I you put a gun to my head and say, when did warfare go from medieval to modern? My answer is 1494. 1494. From medieval warfare to very early modern warfare. What happened in 1494? So this is two years after Columbus discovers America. Did that spark it? No, had nothing to do with it. In 1494, the French king, Charles VIII, invaded Italy. And this big quest to try to take over southern Italy. Long story. But he has an army. That looks very medieval. It still has a lot of knights. It has a lot of Swiss pikemen but it has a large number of easily transportable siege guns. And these siege guns just tear, blows, they blow through Italian city walls like they're made of spam. There's one fortress that tries to offer serious resistance to Charles VIII, and it takes a matter of days before this fortress is smoking rubble. The cannon were much more shocking and deadly than old school trebuchets or catapults. They just made the old walls, they made all those old fortresses that have been hundreds of years, thousands of years in Europe, obsolete in a matter of in a matter of years. And this French Revolution and this artillery usage, the field, the usage of siege artillery to just blow down these walls, changes everything. I mean, Charles VIII had the world's first real combined arms army. He had infantry, cavalry, and artillery, all of which were very good. Now, Charles VIII wasn't a great general or anything. He just he was really benefiting from institutional changes that his predecessors had introduced, Charles VII, a couple other guys, back in the early earlier period. But this is really the foundation of the rock-paper-scissors combination of infantry, cavalry, artillery that is going to dominate the battlefields until World War I, more or less. This is the beginning, according to some people, of what is called the military revolution. This is heavily debated. I mean, this is the last 50 years or so of uh, military history has been one of the biggest debates people have. I mean, there have been entire books published from different articles full of from other different people all talking about their own views on the military revolution debate. The idea was, was there a military revolution in Europe from anywhere from 1500 to 1650 that changed the way wars were fought and changed everything else besides that. Now, there's all these big professors who've argued about it. Michael Roberts, I think, published the first article about it in 1955. Actually, it was a speech he gave that was transcribed into an article, uh, the, the European Military Revolution, talking about changes in infantry warfare in around 1600. Geoffrey Parker decided that it was different. The military revolution actually happened earlier. It happened when the fortress design changed in response to artillery. But they both argue that these changes wrought a larger cultural, social, economic change to Europe. And I sort of agree, but we'll get to that. 
But they believe, you know, how the guns, how the introduction of gunpowder weaponry didn't just change military history. It didn't just change the history of battles and sieges and whatnot. But there were all these knock-on social and political and economic changes that impacted global history. We already talked about how France and the Ottoman Empire used cannons to centralize power and authority within their own domains. How that turned the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire or the King of France into the undisputed ruler of his realm. When before that, they had been, you know, the kings and the emperors and all these people had had to deal with all these powerful nobles and feudal lords. Think about like, I don't know. I keep using this example, and I'm sorry, but Game of Thrones. The king is powerful, but the king has to deal with all these powerful lords as well. Well, when those guys don't have castles to hold out in for more than a few days, those guys look a lot less powerful very quickly. So this was a centralization of authority at the state level that's, that cannons helped to cause. So what do we do now that we have all these huge cannons that can tear down castles in a matter of days? Do we just give up and say, oh, well, we can't have fortresses anymore? Oh, no. Oh, no. We make new fortresses. We make different fortresses. If the castles weren't working anymore, we're going to do something different. Cannons, the use of cannon, the use of field artillery, force people to innovate in response. Remember, technology changes because to solve a problem, to defend against something, to fix a, an issue that you have. So cannons force people to innovate. Castles with high, thin walls, they ain't going to cut it anymore. People didn't dump castles when the castles weren't effective. They upgraded. They improved their castles. So these new fortress types, they originate in Italy, because that's where all the wars are going on after Charles VIII invades Italy and blows up the European balance of power. And France and Spain and Austria and Germany and the Pope and everybody gets involved in these huge wars in Italy. And so that's where the innovation starts for this style of warfare. This new fortress, the new fortress style, the new system. It, that's why it's called the Trace Italian, the Italian the Italian way of making fortresses. These new fortresses weren't like castles. They didn't look like medieval castles. They used low, thick walls in a zigzag formation, arranged like snowflakes or like the teeth of gears around a city. Sometimes multiple fortresses per city. You have like 16 fortresses in a built system around your major capital city. There was one, I think, that they were trying to fortify Rome and the Pope wanted 20 different smaller fortresses all around Rome, but it was so expensive that they only ever finished two of them. And so this also made siege engineers be the most technically important soldiers in any army. These were the guys who were good at maybe defending fortresses or taking fortresses. The guys who knew the tricks, the knew the strategies, and knew the way things needed to be done to defend or capture or design a fortress. And these were huge fortresses. I mean, you'll see a lot of European cities to this day where the, you can have, you see patterns of the old fortresses still laid out in the city design because the city grew, as the city grew, it had to grow around this huge fortress that was defending it. So these huge fortresses, you know, they take thousands, millions of dollars or whatever they used back then. They used just huge amounts of money. They were enormously expensive. They, they could hold hundreds of cannon. They required thousands of men to man. But if you're going to resist the cannon, you got to do this. You got to, you've, 
Find a solution to that new artillery train. You got to find a paper beats rock solution to it. And these fortresses were the answer because the, the early cannon took very long to reduce these fortresses. It, again, it could take months. So you upgrade your fortress taking weapons. We upgrade the fortress and it becomes an arms race with these bigger cannons and bigger fortresses and bigger cannons and bigger fortresses. And so warfare, Warfare from 1500 to pretty much World War I, and even past that at some points, revolves around taking fortresses, which only get bigger and more elaborate as time goes on. I mean, think about the Maginot Line that defended France in 1940. That's just the natural, that's just the natural apex of this train of thought. It's not some like, oh, the French are defensive, they're hiding behind walls. Yeah, everybody had been hiding behind walls for the last 400 years. That was how everybody thought. Almost all battles throughout this period of history, as long as if there were fortresses in the area, the battles were the result of one army trying to siege or trying to break a siege and the other army trying to stop them. Almost all the major battles of the period revolved around sieging and taking fortresses. The siege became the centerpiece of warfare. And we talked about a siege, didn't we, recently? A a siege of this style. Malta, the Siege of Malta, was one of those big epic sieges that was just the centerpiece of this kind of warfare. The Siege of Malta is particularly impressive because Malta didn't have the best fortresses in the world, and it was fighting the best fortress-taking army. The Ottomans had evolved their military to be really good at taking fortresses. That was how they expanded. That was how they built their power. They didn't just take Constantinople in 1453. They took all these other fortresses. That's why these expert Janissary engineers were so important. The French had excellent siege engineers. The Spanish had excellent siege engineers. Italian siege engineers were always keeping their LinkedIn updated. They were always looking for a new job because everybody wanted to hire the Italian siege engineers or the Ottoman siege engineers or the Hungarian siege engineers. And so Geoffrey Parker, the historian, says that this is where the true military revolution was, that these fortresses changed everything. And there's a point. The fact the fortresses were crazy expensive and all the stuff you needed to take them was crazy expensive means that states need more money. Just huge amounts of money. More money than any medieval kingdom was ever taking in. It makes the Roman Empire's treasury look positively puny because we need more money. We need to build these huge fortresses. We need to build, buy more cannon and train more siege engineers to take these fortresses. People weren't going to stop waging war just because it got difficult. People weren't going to stop waging war because it got expensive. But there are these huge wars and they're just so expensive. They're enormously expensive. They drive many countries bankrupt. There's entire long wars, like the Dutch Wars of Independence from Spain, where you can count the number of field battles on one hand, but the sieges happen every year, and they're much more important. So when we, that's why one reason when we look at this t- time period of warfare, the battle seems like a big epic story. It's always fun to see a battle, but the sieges, which took months, were what everybody focused on. But guns are now being used by infantry as well. And it's not just artillery anymore. So let's talk about infantry and how infantry got to using guns. Right? So infantry. Infantry innovations in the late Middle Ages revolve around making them able to stand up to what else? Cavalry, the most dangerous weapon on the battlefield. 
So how did the Europeans use infantry to deal with cavalry? Well, there are a couple ways you could do that. You could use missile weapons, like longbowmen. Some of the most famous medieval battles are the battles of Crecy and Agincourt in France, where the English longbowmen just slaughtered French knights on, you know, wholesale. Crossbowmen, too. Crossbowmen were the earliest form of turning from muscle power to mechanical power or machine power for your handhold weapons, and it helps pave the way for guns, because the longbowmen, you had to develop your muscles. You train longbowmen for years to be ex to be good fighters, but crossbowmen, you could just pull a trigger. This was not always useful when your missile weapons, when your missile soldiers were unprotected and called out of position, the cavalry would run them down and slaughter them. In the Hundred Years' War, remember, the English won those battles of Crecy and Agincourt, those are the famous battles, but France won the war. Because when France did catch the longbowmen out of position, like at uh, Cassillon in 1450, oh boy, the longbowmen were going to have a bad time because, you know, those cavalry coming at you really fast and they're going to stab you just as fast. So there's another way to deal with cavalry, right? The cavalry are carrying long pointy objects. What if you got a long pointy object of your own? So a lot of people started to do the throwback thing, look back to the ancient Greeks and develop a phalanx, develop a big formation of guys with spears. This, these were pikemen. The Italians liked to do this. The Flemish liked to do this. The Scots did this at Bannockburn in 1314. The spear, and this is another tangent. I'm getting off another tangent. The spear has historically been, until the development of gunpowder, the most important infantry weapon. Not the sword. The spear. Because the spear fights cavalry. The spear stops cavalry. The long pointy object stops cavalry. Horses aren't animals. They're not cars. They're not stupid. You, if the horse sees a bunch of pointy objects facing it, the horse is not going to run into the pointy objects. He's going to run away from them or around them. He's going to stop like, no, no, you're not making me do that. I cannot. You're not going to make me do that. The horse is not going to go impale himself on sticks just because you tell him to. The horse is going to turn around and say, nope, 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 and run away. Spears are the most important infantry weapon until the handheld firearm, period. Period, end of story. The swords, there's only a couple of exceptions, and that's when the Roman legionaries used swords as their primary weapon, but they were an exception. Spears are the primary infantry weapon. That is the thing that you use as your weapon. Spears are some other kind of polearm. But making this work only really worked with a close-knit organization of some kind, the spear forces because cavalry had this shock effect they had this psychological impact when they charged right at you very scary very fast so you had to have some sort of unit cohesion in these spear units or they were just going to run away i mean get me out of here so the italians the flemish the scots typically had a very strong communal bond the flemish and the italians were residents of cities the scots had some degree of clan bonding and the Swiss had their little cantonments. They had their little community organizations that made them a particularly strong, cohesive infantry force. But again, these spears, if you've got your entire formation facing one direction and cavalry comes at you unexpectedly from another direction, you are your shish kebab. You're going to be skewered. It's going, you're going to die. So we can kind of get to why there, there are problems of gunpowder infantry in a cavalry-heavy world. This is why gunpowder infantry never really called on in most areas that had to fight steppe nomads. Protection. 
How do you how do you stop the cavalry from running down on you and killing you before you can get off a shot? Early handheld guns were not useful as infantry weapons unless there was some kind of barrier between the infantry and the attacking cavalry. That's the big problem that people have to solve and it takes them a long time to solve it. Cool, you got the gunpowder infantry. How do you protect them from cavalry? The first people I know of to really figure this out, to try something really interesting were the Hussites, a bunch of religious heretics in the Czech Republic, Bohemia around 1420. That story's not important. Uh, I really want to do a few episodes on them someday, but not today. We're talking about a bunch of other stuff. But uh, the Hussites did this in combination with crossbows and pole arms. They had this thing called the Wagenberg. The Hussites were religious heretics. They were fighting against German knights, and they didn't really have any knights of their own. They were peasants. They were a peasant army. So how do we fight the knights off and we're just peasants? Well, they had this idea, their leader, Jan Ziska, had this idea where they surrounded a bunch of wagons and built these wagon, like little wagon fortresses, like building the corral to fight off the Indians in the Old West or something. But they would build this corral of wagons and they just used their missile weapons and pole arms to shoot at the cavalry from behind the wagons so the cavalry would try to charge them and they run into these wagons like oh what do we do and they're being shot and you know by crossbows and firearms and the Hussites were very good at this they used this multiple times to defeat multiple German armies and other people around them saw this they're like huh oh it's actually really that's actually really smart and they started doing it uh, I know that Hungary, the Kingdom of Hungary, uh, under their king Matthias Corvinus and his black army, adopted this tactic, the Wagenberg tactic, using a combination of crossbows and early gunpowder weapons. So these gunpowder weapons, these handheld gunpowder weapons, let's talk about these real quick. Uh, so these have been used through the 1400s, not always successfully. The very early ones were the handgun and the handgun took a long time to load, was not very reliable, had very low range, very low accuracy, all that. Then they're around, but a lot of people aren't using them just just because why? Uh, They barely show up at all, for instance, during the Wars of the Roses, the big English wars between the houses of Lancaster and York from 1455 to 1487. They They barely show up at all then. There are a couple of cannon here and there, but they're only really used in small numbers in certain situations due to the difficulty of defending gunpowder infantry against cavalry. So when we talk about these early guns, there's a couple terms that get thrown around. Uh, the arquebus. Arquebus. The arquebus is probably something that is translated closely to hook gun. It's a small, light infantry firearm. Uh, these things sucked. I mean, compared to something like, I don't know, an M16, or even a bolt-action rifle from World War I, or even, a, or even a flintlock musket from the American Revolution, these things sucked. These things sucked. I mean, let's, let me just describe to you how long it took to reload one of these things. Here are the steps to reload an arquebus in 1465. And once again, this is from Firearms, A Global History to 1700 by Kenneth Chase. After you fire, you got to hold the gun up with your left hand, take the match, there's a burning match, out of the lock with your right hand, put the end of the match back in your left hand, blow any sparks out of the priming pan, which is where the gunpowder is going to go. You got to put the priming powder into the pan so it doesn't blow up in your face. That's why you blow the sparks out first. You shut the pan, you shake any powder off the lid of the pan so it doesn't catch fire when you're moving that little lit match around between your fingers. 
uh, you pick up the gun in both hands, put the gun on your left side, open the open the flask and pour some powder down the the muzzle and put the bullet down the muzzle, pull the ramrod out from where it's stored on the side of the gun, adjust your grip, ram home the bullet and the powder, just put it push it up in there where it's going to be touched off by the match. Pull out the ramrod and turn the ramrod around, put the ramrod back on the stock, hold the gun up with your other hand, take one end of the match, blow on the match to make sure the fuse is lit, insert the match into a lock, adjust the match, make sure that it's going to fire when you pull the trigger, blow on the match again to make sure it's still lit, level the gun, and finally pull the trigger. The trigger will push the match into the small touch hole, which will light that powder and send the bullet going down range. You have to do all of that every single time you shoot this weapon. There's no semi-automatic. That's not even a really good muzzle loader. This is, this sucks. How, how are you going to do this when you're doing all this, when there is a guy riding towards you at 25 miles per hour in armor with a sword or with a long spear who is just going to stab you in the face while you're trying to figure out which hand your match goes in. It sucks. So the question seems to be, right? It seems to be less. Why didn't everybody use guns immediately? And more, why did anyone try to use these things? Now we're sitting here wondering, well, why did anybody think these were worth anything? The answer is, why do people start using guns in the first place when they obviously sucked? Thanks to those larger fortresses, you need much larger armies of infantry. And these infantry need weapons that are easy to train and easy to use, not take years like an archer. Need weapons that are effective against armor. Need weapons that can also effectively tackle other large infantry armies and that use machine power rather than muscle power so troops don't tire out in longer battles. This, this was the central advantage of gunpowder weapons over archery, over longbows, or any kind of bow. It took years, up to five years, to train a decent archer. It could take weeks to train a musketeer. And this, this is the big thing. This, it's the ease of use. Yeah, it wasn't easy to use. I just described how difficult it was to use. But to train an archer took years to develop the, the instincts, the drills, the muscle group. The muscle group in the arm that draws the bow is not a normally developed group of muscles. It took years. But you could take weeks and train a bunch of musket men. And that was the advantage. That was the difference. You also got penetrate armor, and this is where we really see all that crazy plate armor start to evolve to try and stop gunshots, and that armor could be reasonably effective. But always, 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 cavalry remains the biggest threat to gunpowder infantry just because of that speed and shock. That long reload time, you'll, you only have to fire once, and then you're trying to reload while the cavalry rides down on you. So how do you solve this problem? How do we turn these infantry gunpowder weapons, which have advantages, into something that can defeat cavalry? Almost every part of Europe, Asia, Africa, you name it, has this one big battle where gunpowder infantry really defeats cavalry for the first time. And in every one of these battles, they almost always use some sort of obstacle of some kind to shield the gunpowder infantry from the cavalry. In Europe, 
This battle is the Battle of Serignola in 1503. The great uh, Spanish general Gonzalo Fernandez de Cordoba, el gran capitán, is defe- defeats a French army in Italy. Remember, this is the same combined arms French army we talked about with the Swiss pikemen and the heavy French cavalry and the cannons. And he defeats them. He trashes them at the Battle of Serignola. He has a large m- number of arquebus-wielding gunpowder infantry, and he has them in a trench behind obstacles. And so when the French cavalry comes riding up, his troops just blast away at them and slaughter them. Because they can't get past the obstacles, those obstacles stop the cavalry from their charge. There's another battle in Europe that's, that's the alternative, uh, big first big gunpowder battle. And this is Bicocca in 1522, another big battle in the Italian wars with the French and the Spanish. This is where Spanish arquebusiers and mercenary arquebusiers led by uh, Prospero Colonna, I think, but they just shred the Swiss pikemen. It's one of the biggest traumas in Swiss history because this is when the Swiss are like, okay, we're going to stop hiring out all our young boys to go to Italy and get slaughtered by these guys. This is an infantry versus infantry fight, not infantry versus cavalry fight, but shows that gunpowder infantry are now predominant on the battlefield versus any other type. For instance, the Swiss pikemen, who had dominated the European battlefield for 50 years up until Bacocca in 1522. This big battle where gunpowder infantry defeats cavalry, then let's look at the Ottoman Empire. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago with the Janissaries and how they were the gunpowder infantry that made the Ottoman Empire such a big force. The Janissaries were using the arquebus by the 1440s at the earliest. And they had a tactic. They adopted their tactics from the Hungarians, who adopted them from the Hussites. This is the use of carts chained together to create a barricade. That was how the early Janissaries wielded their gunpowder weapons to greatest effect. Because the Ottomans were fighting enemies that had lots of cavalry, and this was really important that they do this. So the Ottomans trained, chained their carts together in the Battle of Chaldiran in 1514 versus the Persians. The Iranian armies relied on light cavalry, and the Janissary musketeers got behind their carts all chained together to create that barricade, and from behind this barricade, they slaughtered the Persians. And after this battle, Shah Ismail I of the Persian Empire was like, huh, that's actually a good idea. And he adopted the arquebus and had about 12,000 musket-armed infantry by the time he died. They do the same thing and marched a beak in 1516 against the Mamelukes who rule Egypt. Now, the Mamelukes are those guys, they hate the arquebus. They hate it. Not because it's not useful to them, because they didn't really try to use it. They hate it because it takes all the chivalry and all the, you know, the coolness of the guy and the horse out of warfare. They're like, oh, why we use this thing? This thing is uncivilized, unchivalrous. They cursed anyone who used them, and they double cursed any Muslim who used them against other Muslims, because that's worse somehow. Either way, the Mamelukes ruled a cavalry-based aristocracy state. They were originally slaves. I went over that a bit. It's not that important. But the Ottomans were a centralized empire with a standing infantry army. So it was also, you know, the Ottomans were a society and empire that had been revolutionized by the use of gunpowder, and the Mamelukes weren't. But yeah, the, um, the Ottoman infantry got behind their carts again, chained them together, and they slaughtered the Mameluke cavalry from these carts And that's how the Ottomans went on to conquer Syria and Egypt and Arabia and become the caliphs and basically build the last big Islamic empire through the use of this gunpowder infantry versus the previously dominant battlefield cavalry. Again, I want to talk all about the Ottomans someday. I really, 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 really do. I like the Ottomans. 
I want to do like a six episode series about the rise of the Ottoman Empire someday, including like the battles of March to Beak and Chalderon. But I have 50 years left on this mortal coil, and if this podcast runs 50 years, that'll be quite an accomplishment. I only have 30 years left if I keep buying fried chicken from Kroger when I don't feel like cooking. But anyway, moving on. Okay, Mughal India. Mughal India. Babur, the founder of the Mughal Empire, the Mughal Dynasty, at Panipat in 1526, he learned his tactics from the Ottomans. So he fights off all this Indian cavalry and all this these Indian elephants in North India on his way to conquer Delhi using a bunch of carts that he chained together to hide his infantry behind while his arquebusiers slaughtered the cavalry. Sound familiar yet? Ooh, I want to talk about the Mughals someday, too. I want to do like a six-episode series on the Mughals. Again, only so much time in my life left. Moving on. Okay, so Japan. Japan. This is a weird case. This because the, Jap- the Japanese case looks a lot more like Europe. The arquebus was brought to Japan by the Portuguese, who landed at Tanagashima in 1543 with these cool new things. Hey, look at this. And uh, that's why the arquebus in Japan was called the Tanagashima, just called that after the first place it was introduced for the first couple years. So it was a big battle at Nagashino in 1575. It's called the Slaughter at the Barricades. There was this Japanese warlord called Oda Nobunaga, and he was fighting the another Japanese rival clan called the Takeda clan. The Takeda was famous for their heavy shot cavalry, and these heavy shot cavalry were really, really dangerous. Oda Nobunaga is besieging a fortress. What did I talk about? How these fortresses are... Every battle starts with someone trying to take or keep someone else from taking a fortress. And the Takeda cavalry come riding to the rescue, and Oda Nobunaga has his arquebusiers behind a wicker barricade, and he just slaughters the Decatur clan's cavalry. It's actually a really good portrayal of a battle like this, or a battle that's meant to be a facsimile of this in the uh, Akira Kurosawa movie Ron. I think it was in 1973. It's um, it's a Japanese version of King Lear, and there's this big battle scene. It's thousands of extras. It's a great battle scene. So the kind of battle scene that they can only do back in the 70s and 80s, because now everything's CGI. And so you have a thousand CGI soldiers in battle. But they had thousands of extras riding around on horses and using... Uh, prop muskets and stuff, and it's great. It's a great battle scene. I want to talk about Japan Samurai War someday. Maybe that's a six-episode series. Moving on. But when it didn't work, when this stuff, when they did, weren't behind a barricade, bad things happened. Like just before the Battle of Nagashino, there's this battle called Mikatagahara in 1573, where one of Oda Nobunaga's generals tried to use the gunpowder infantry against cavalry, but he didn't have them behind a barricade. He had them in the open. And what happened? He he outnumbered them, I think. I think he did. But it didn't matter because the cavalry just rode them down and slaughtered them after they got the first volley off. So, yeah, you got to have a barricade between you and the cavalry. So we see a pattern here, right? All across the world, gunpowder infantry can be decisive as long as it's protected. But that limits its mobility. It can't really be used offensively. So how do you use gunpowder infantry on the offense when you have to be behind a defensive barricade to use them in battle? The answer is something that's called pike and shot. This was a tactic that Europeans developed in the 1500s to protect the gunpowder infantry. Pike and shot. And the real pioneers in this were the Spanish. The Spanish Terquillo was a big block of armored pikemen 
with detachments of musketeers on its flanks. And when the cavalry got too close, they would just hide inside the pikemen. When the cavalry moved away, they would come back out and shoot at, shoot at anything that moved. It was a mixture of those pikemen, those infantry pikemen that the Europeans had developed, and the firepower of the arquebus. This was the mixture of infantry shock and infantry fire. And the Spanish Terquio was the dominant infantry formation for the next hundred years in Europe. And so, once again, you see innovation coming from a need to solve a problem. The problem, how do we protect the infantry? Innovation. We give a bunch of pikemen and surround them with musketeers. Keep in mind, look at what's going on here. This is upgrading the software, not the hardware. The muskets didn't change. The firearms didn't change that much to develop this tactic. The way they used everything developed. The technology didn't change enormously. Guns didn't suddenly become much better. It was the way that everybody used the guns that changed things. It was the ideas that changed things, not the technology itself. The technology is only as good as its implementation. So everyone who uses gunpowder infantry for the next 200 years, now that we have this pike and shot thing, has to balance the number of melee weapons versus the number of muskets. More fire is always better. More guys shooting is always better. You want as many shooters as possible. But you can't have too many shooters or you don't have enough protection from the cavalry. So that's why in the 1500s, 1600s, you see all these infantry formations walking around with mixed mixes of melee weapons and guns. This is why this is why there's such a weird transition period here. It's why I like it so much. It's so interesting. Between this medieval style of warfare and this modern style of warfare, those gunpowder infantry need protection. And those pike infantry will get shredded by gunpowder infantry if they go up against them alone. They need to have a mixture. This mixture changes and develops. Everybody's trying new ways to make the mixture work better, to make the mixture work differently. It's a very interesting time period. There's all these military manuals written. People theorize about what the best way to do things is. Even Machiavelli, Niccolo Machiavelli, who wrote, you know, The Prince, the big political scheming textbook that people like to cite all the time. He wrote a whole other book called The Art of War, where he was putting out his own theories about how warfare ought to be fought in his time period, which was this time period. It's this very interesting period of evolution, of technological and tactical evolution. And cavalry still remains very dangerous throughout this period. This None of this made cavalry obsolete. It's still the only battlefield weapon that moves as fast with as much shock as it does. Speed and shock is still exclusively a cavalry thing. Cavalry is still running down infantry when they catch them out of position. Cavalry doesn't rule the battlefield anymore, but still, if you, the cavalry catch you when you're flank or your rear or when you're not deployed or it catches the musketeers separated from the pikemen or it finds a gap in your line, you're going to have a bad day. Cavalry is still very dangerous. It remains dangerous up until the 20th century. But gunpowder warfare, this, all this transitions, all these massive changes to how wars were fought also changed the rest of the world. They changed the society. For instance, look at European expansion. Now, it's easy to get too carried away with this. Gunpowder was only one major weapon in the European conquest of, say, the Aztecs and the Incas. And it wasn't even that effective by this point. Steel and horses were more important in the conquest of um, the New World than gunpowder was. We saw the Portuguese in Africa in the episode about Najinga. 
steel weaponry and fortresses were usually more important than guns. Because see, Najingo is able to get guns and integrate gunpowder weaponry into her tactics in Nadongo. But the Portuguese use of steel in those fortresses, that was the game changer in large parts of the world. But Portuguese expansion had another dimension. The Portuguese were expanding on the water. And in this context, the gunpowder warfare changed everything. Because Portuguese ships, there are only a few of them in most cases, but they carried huge numbers of guns. They went from Brazil to Africa to India to China to Indonesia. And these very small numbers of Portuguese ships, they were carrying hundreds of guns. They just smashed anything from Africa to China to Southeast Asia. This is what built the Portuguese Empire. Now, these people have guns. China had guns. Vietnam had guns. India had guns. None of these places were meeting guns for the first time when the Portuguese arrived. But thanks to Europe's unique position and constant infighting, only they had that number and quality of guns that the rest of the world didn't have. It wasn't like either side was in a race. It wasn't like the Chinese were looking across the world hundreds, thousands of miles away at Europe and saying, oh, Europe's getting guns. We better work on those. They didn't know. And besides, like I've said before, Europe wasn't their problem. The Mongols were. Up north, the steppe nomads. And even the Chinese were still using, they were using handheld guns. They were using these at the time. But they were trying to launch an expedition deep into Mongol territory with a bunch of dudes with guns, even if they were using carts, which they did. The Chinese also used chained together carts as part of their gunpowder warfare. It just wasn't productive. It didn't accomplish anything. So why would you do it? No, the Chinese were focused on defending their fortresses. That's what they were focused on. That's why their gunpowder technology developed the way it did. But then the Portuguese show up and they have hundreds of cannon and the Chinese are like, what? where did this come from? What do we do? The Asians were losing a race they didn't know was happening until they already lost it. Tools exist for a reason, to do something. And most places didn't know they needed these tools until the Portuguese showed, were like, hey, what up, with hundreds of cannon. Don't get too carried away. This wasn't like the Portuguese suddenly conquered the world. A lot of places expelled the Portuguese because the Portuguese were major jerks to everyone they ran into. They made no friends. And most of the time they were kicked out pretty quickly once people realized what was going on. The Chinese messed the Portuguese up once they were like, oh, oh, these guys suck. We're we're taking care of these guys. But the Europeans had a firepower advantage from the get-go and it only got bigger. But also, gunpowder changed how states developed, how countries developed. All these large infantry armies, these large fortresses, these large artillery trains forced the state to centralize, to take in more money, to hire taxes, to find ways to get more money, take out loans. This is where the financial industry really takes off because all these big countries need enormous loans to fight these really expensive wars. So banks, foreign trade, the financial industry, it all grows up in large part because of the demand for capital. This huge demand for capital to fight these enormous wars that have suddenly gotten very, 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 very expensive. By the 1560s, 1570s, which I'll remind you is Less than 100 years after this whole real gunpowder revolution started to get kicked off, Spain is supporting a 100,000-man army of Flanders to fight the Dutch up in Belgium. That's, That's an enormous army. That's a huge army. That's Nobody in Europe even thought of something like that before then. It needs an enormous, massive 
jaw-dropping amount of food and supplies and gunpowder. And Spain goes bankrupt multiple times trying to do it. Spain is the richest country in Europe. It's pulling in gold and silver from all over the New World. It has enormous empires all over the world. And it's still going bankrupt all the time. But the Dutch, who have a banking industry, who are learning how to do all this financial stuff, they're somehow never out of money. And so warfare becomes a big money question, a big money issue. And this is partially because of all this gunpowder weaponry and all the changes it caused. Warfare had changed. Warfare changed dramatically. It was much more resource intensive and firepower intensive than in medieval times. Cavalry is now less of a social class and more of just one among many supporting combat arms. They got this infantry, artillery, cavalry trifecta that won't really change until the next big military revolution, which is pretty much World War I. And the nature of organization changed. It wasn't small forces of mostly cavalry fighting in these medieval battles. Now we have large standing armies of infantry. Infantry is now the dominant force in the battlefield, and it will be up until the present day. This all comes to a real big head with uh, a Dutch general, the Dutch leader, the Dutch stat holder, Maurice of Nassau. Maurice of Nassau put his army through a bunch of reforms. His reform was to solve a problem. All reforms are to solve a problem. And Maurice's reforms were all software. The hardware didn't change that much, but Maurice changed the software, the technology, the military software to make his army more effective against the Spanish, who were taking his cities and trying to destroy the Dutch Republic. How do we make our infantry more effective against other infantry in a very infantry-heavy war? And Maurice decided, I need to increase the firepower of my infantry. How do I do this? How to maximize the effects of infantry fire? First off, fewer pikes, more muskets. We're taking a risk, but fewer pikes and more muskets. And this old Spanish Turkios could have like a five to one ratio, five pikes for every one musket. But Maurice starts to change that ratio. It goes down to two to one or even one to one. And what's more, we introduce drill, discipline. Uh, there's a There are drill books. Some of the first drill books in military history are written by Maurice of Nassau, for his Dutch army, where it's showing in pictures exactly how to load and fire the musket, the movements you make. So his largely illiterate soldiers could learn how to do these things and train for them. And he increased literacy in his ranks so they could learn how to read and learn more advanced ways to do things. Maurice was literally was imitating the Roman legions. That was what he was his big model for how to transform his army into a modern standard infantry army. And just a little bit, he was also working from the Janissaries, which he knew about. He also introduced volleyed fire, the idea of controlling those infantry fires in a single volley to deliver a shock power in addition to the firepower. And he also deployed his troops in longer lines, four to five deep, maybe three deep, to maximize the amount of people who could be firing at one time, to maximize that firepower against the enemy. To do this, to have this, to maintain this control, to maintain the control over a larger battlefield because that those lines were longer, they made control more difficult, he organized his troops into brigades and battalions so that lower level officers could have more control at those at their level to control the battlefield through a hierarchy. 
And this sounds like modern armies. This sounds like this is the stage of evolution where we start to realize the effects of gunpowder warfare to create a very rough image of what modern armies ended up looking like. This was a very effective tactic. These were This was an effective army against the Spanish. The Battle of Newport in 1600 is sometimes called the first modern battle because Maurice of Nassau develops these tactics and uses them successfully against the Spanish. Michael Roberts, the historian, says this was the real military revolution. And he's got a point, just like Jeffrey Parker's got a point, talking about the fortresses being the real military revolution. But there's also a change in how infantry had fought based on this, on a psychological level. Most of military history before gunpowder had revolved around heroic courage, the warrior courage, the ability to charge into battle with your sword and fight other guys with swords. The idea of the that Viking idea of courage, the Spartan idea of courage, the samurai idea of courage. But gunpowder warfare had people reconsidering what courage meant. Really, I'm serious. From heroic courage to stoic courage. The warrior's courage versus the soldier's courage. Because now the ability to charge into battle like a lunatic wasn't what people respected anymore. It was the ability to remain cool and dispassionate under fire because the gunpowder battlefield was a much more chaotic, much louder, much more destructive place. Coolness under fire rather than savagery under fire became the new norm, the new ideal. The ability of, you know, thousands of ranks of infantry to stand up to enemy fire, discipline, Stiff upper lip, that became the new ideal of courage in the gunpowder era. Heroic courage versus stoic courage. Warrior's courage versus the soldier's courage. It's a generally more egalitarian way of looking at things, too. Heroic courage tend to center around great warriors, knights, samurai, Spartans, Viking lords. But the soldier's courage, anybody could do that. A private could do that. And it was a psychological difference in how people approached war. And this was something that Western armies tended to have that other armies didn't tend to have. And this was a large psychological effect over other countries throughout history, throughout this period of history. I'm not going to say this was pervasive. Many other countries that managed to develop a form of stoic warfare, a form of stoic courage. A lot of African, Asian, different armies developed this as a response to European styles of courage. It's important when we talk about all this technology and these economics and these tactics that we don't overlook the changes that were going on in the chemical compound of a person's mind, of the collective mind, that changes with history as well. Different concepts of what humans are supposed to do, what soldiers are supposed to do in battle. This cultural concept was changing as a result of the technological changes that that gunpowder warfare had brought. There was just, it changed so many things that it's hard to really put a cap on it. Because the change in the nature of warfare changed the nature of the state. It changed its relationship to society and the individual. The rise of really centralized nation-states begins with gunpowder warfare. The death of feudalism begins with gunpowder warfare. This is the reason why gunpowder can be seen as the beginning of the modern age. Not just the changes it brought to war, but the way those changes in war fostered changes in everything else. 
is drove changes and everything else. The need to solve these problems that gunpowder offered solutions to, but also that gunpowder created, drove everything else to change as well. All these second, third, fourth order effects that came from gunpowder warfare. And then there was the final stage in evolution. I told you we're going to take you. We're going to take you from mustangs to muskets. We're going to get from the medieval knight to the red coat or the um, the American Revolution soldier. We're going to finish that journey. There was this growing evolution to mass fire, where everyone was now trying to deliver as much fire as possible as fast as possible. And again, this created a problem that needed a solution. With evolution of this kind of warfare, whoever broke first lost. That's why in the 1600s, 1700s, we have this big emphasis on discipline, on drill, on doing everything in lockstep together to try to get people to stand up to this fire, to get people to have this stoic courage that is now suddenly required on the battlefield. The volume of fire and rapidity of fire became how people were going to win battles, how one infantry line defeated another infantry line was volume and rapidity of fire. And this is a big problem for some people because all these guys are still carrying pikes, right? There's still dudes carrying pikes and melee weapons to defend the, the shooters from the cavalry. So there's two steps to this. The first is the evolution of the flintlock musket, which is a much better and much more, more reliable weapon than the old matchlock arquebus. The arquebus had evolved slowly from 1450 to about 1650. It's still the primary infantry weapon. It's still much less effective. But the change, the flintlock, this where pulling the trigger, you don't have to carry around a lit match anymore to light your gun on fire to shoot something anymore. You pull a trigger and it strikes a piece of flint that produces the spark that lights the powder that sends the round down rage. It makes reloading much faster. It makes the gun much more reliable. And so let's put, so we still got to defend against cavalry, right? Well, let's turn, let's turn the musket man into a spearman. What if we put a blade on a gun? I mean, this took a long time to implement. People had this idea early on, like I said, like innovation, imagination often doesn't match the implementation. Yeah, great idea. Put a sword on a gun. How's that going to work, guy? Where are we going to put it? It's already a really heavy gun. It's already kind of a piece of crap. Where do we put this thing? The first idea was, hey, let's put the sword in the end of the gun. Oh, no. Oh, no. Then you can't shoot. Well, what do we do? Eventually, by about 1700, someone figures out how to put a socket on the end of the flintlock musket to fit the new sword into. And you have the bayonet. The bayonet that goes on the end of the musket. This turns every musket man into his own spearman. And now you don't need pikemen anymore because now infantry, musket infantry can defend themselves against cavalry. They can form into a big hedge of bayonets that can drive off cavalry. And now we have the transformation. The transformation is complete. We have the guy with the flintlock musket and the bayonet fighting in a line. We have the famous soldier that we can all see in our heads. The red coat, the Minuteman, Napoleon's infantry, Wellington's infantry, the Civil War soldier. Technology changed the way it did because everything evolved to meet a need, a requirement. At first, gunpowder was a cool invention without a real purpose. A solution without a problem. Yeah, you have a gun. What do we do with it? None of our problems are going to be fixed by that gun. 
cannon evolved to meet the problems of fortresses. That's how why they got bigger, they got stronger, they got more powerful. This is why the Chinese were behind on gunpowder tech compared to the Europeans, even though they invented it. Because they were more interested in defending fortresses than attacking them. So they had no need to improve and innovate their cannon. But the Europeans did. They had to get bigger and better cannon to take out the fortresses. They were more interested in destroying fortresses than defending them. But fortresses evolved to resist cannons, and the need to besiege and take these new-style fortresses required much larger infantry armies, and they needed weapons that were relatively easy to use, that used machine power rather than muscle power, and that could fight off other large infantry or cavalry armies. Then we have gunpowder infantry that develops in response to that, but they need protection from cavalry. They also have to evolve to develop higher volumes of fire. And you see that both the, um, the hardware, like Better muskets, better bayonets, or the bayonets at all. And the software, new tactics, new drill, new discipline, all this evolves in response to a problem. So this is why it's important to understand how technology works, why it's not a tech tree, why it's not obvious to go from guns one to guns three, why it's not obvious to research chemistry so I can get guns. Because it has to solve a problem, it has to serve a purpose that has to be clear and Immediate, it's immediate purpose. You know, the people in 1400 did not see the red coat. They did not see the Civil War battle line. They didn't know that was going to happen. They were just trying to solve the problem right in front of them. And in so doing, they, had to, they created a new problem that they had to solve. And that created the new problem and so on and so forth. That's how technology develops in history. That's how military technology develops. We have to understand that, to understand why things developed the way they did, why societies reacted the way they did. This is why the Europeans ended up ahead in gunpowder warfare, not because they were smarter or better people or, God forbid, some racially superior group or more creative or any of that, but because the nature of the problems they faced were different. The Japanese evolved in much the same way, but a whole different thing happened with them as we will see coming up. Look forward to February, I got some stuff planned. But neither... Neither one of these groups, the Europeans or the Japanese, faced a serious threat from steppe nomads during the time gunpowder weapons became viable, which enabled them to focus on other armies like them, which allowed them to develop gunpowder weapons instead of step, fighting steppe nomads, against which gunpowder weapons were just not that effective early on. The main European and Japanese challenges were taking enemy fortresses, fighting enemy infantry armies, and protecting themselves from enemy heavy cavalry. Chinese priorities were defending their own fortresses and fighting fast-moving steppe nomads who were mostly light cavalry. They had different problems to solve, and it's no wonder their technology evolved in different ways. This is why even though the Chinese invented gunpowder and gunpowder warfare, the Europeans and the Japanese were the ones who developed it to its apex. The Europeans and their offshoots, like the Americans, etc., have been on the forefront of gun technology because their geography and their political situation created unique military problems, and they developed their guns to meet them. That's the problems drove the technology. So when we think about how technology developed, and we say, well, why didn't they do this? There's usually a reason. My big point throughout all this, really, is that people aren't stupid. People in the past weren't stupid. They did what they did for reasons. They developed the technology they developed for reasons. They developed it to solve a problem. And when we understand that, we don't just understand more about them. 
we understand more about ourselves, about how humans function with technology. Technology develops to solve problems, but it creates problems, and we develop more technology to solve those problems. All this keeps happening. It's not, it didn't stop with gunpowder. As we, we know very well that the guy I ended up our story with, the, the guy with the flintlock musket and the bayonet, he was not the apex of military history. He was not the end of technological change. But all oh, that's another story. I mean, tech, military technology isn't the only field of technology that, that induces vast human change. I think social media technology has created both solutions and problems. And I'm fascinated and kind of terrified to see what we'll think of next to solve that. I guess stay tuned. Uh, have fun on history's wild ride. Boy, it's much less fun experiencing it than it is talking about it, isn't it? <laughs> we'll see, though. We'll see. There's crazier things that can happen than just going from Mustangs to muskets. Whew. Thanks for listening to me rant about guns for, oh, wow, an hour and 42 minutes. Something like that? Yeah. So this is a, this is my first Unfiltered Soldiers episode. I hope you like it. I hope you learned something. And if you didn't, maybe I won't do this again. This is an experiment, really. But I hope you really enjoyed learning about this and hope you really enjoyed me talking about it because I think it's fascinating. I think I want to do more of these in the future where I talk about a particular topic. I think there's, to some degree, there's benefits and drawbacks to this format, and I'm going to try to develop it as time goes on. So if you like this, please tell your friends. If you don't like it, tell your enemies. Uh, just make sure they can't run you down and stab you from horseback before you can do anything about it. Uh, don't forget that I'm on Facebook and on Twitter at UNKSoldiersPod. You can even email me at UnknownSoldiersPodcast at gmail.com or go to my website, UnknownSoldiersPodcast.com. I always appreciate feedback, even if it's just kind words, mean words. If you got mean words, just tell me. Just tell me. I can take it. I promise. I've heard worse. And hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode of Unfiltered Soldiers. If the response is positive... There will be more to come. Either way, I will see you, same time, same place, next week on Unknown Soldiers.